Once again, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We began the study of this, uh, we call it a sermonic letter. We call it that because people smarter than us call it that, but uh, uh, sermonic letter. In other words, it is a letter, but it doesn't have some of the characteristics of a letter, such as uh, name of the people that were uh, originally addressed to or signed by the person who wrote it. And it has much of the characteristic of a, a, a sermon, a uh, 13-chapter sermon, but uh, a sermon nevertheless. Uh, and yet, through all of this, uh, the writer of Hebrews is helping the original readers and all who have read it subsequently to recognize the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ above all things. And we have the opportunity to explore that again. Uh, this morning we move into Hebrews chapter 9. We are going to break Hebrews chapter 9 into two parts. Uh, we'll look at verses 1 through 14 uh, this morning. Uh, and then we'll pick up and finish Hebrews 9 next week. Then we'll take a, a break beginning uh, the, the, day, the, the day before Memorial Day uh, for the summer. We'll be having a number of things. Uh, when I'm preaching during the summer, I'll be having doing a series through the, the Lord's Prayer. I have no idea what other people are going to be preaching about. Hopefully, well, it'll be the Bible or they won't come back. But um, <laughs> so... Um, but uh, I'm not going to assign them the text. We're just thankful to have, whether it's Preston or uh, others who will be uh, filling in at different times uh, while Camper is on sabbatical. So we won't call it a sermon series because, you know, we'll be having that about half the time. Uh, but we'll, we'll, be, uh, we'll be looking at the scripture in different ways and God will continue to speak with us. This morning, Hebrews chapter 9, begin our reading in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 15, but we'll focus on verse uh, through verses 14 this morning. Hear the word of our God. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna from the wilderness, and Aaron's staff that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that, that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all 
into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but uh, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The word of our God. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for all word that leads us to you, tells us of you, reminds us of of our own need, uh, and yet also the remedy. And so, Lord, we pray as we come to this word again today, that as we unpack it, uh, you would speak to us, encourage us, and shape us. We might all grow in our maturity in Christ, in grace, even as we are knitted together as the body, the temple that you are building here on earth. Lord, to you be glory, but to your people here and throughout the world, grace and peace, we pray in the name of Christ, our Redeemer King. Amen. Edgar Allan Poe, in his gruesome short story, A Telltale Heart, tells the story of a man who, for no real explicable reason, committed a murder of of his roommate. Then after having committed the murder, he tries to hide the body onto the floorboards of his own living room. As the story unfolds, we see the police knocking on the door. The neighbors, having heard uh, noises that were alarming, called the police, told them there were disturbing noises coming from uh, the neighbor's house. The police arrived to investigate to see what was going on, if anything, and began to interview the man who serves as both the narrator and the focal point of the story. As they move inside to the house, they stand and the police begin to interview him, questioning him in the very living room on the floor directly above the body which he was hiding. While the police are asking him questions, the man begins to hear this sound, first a faint sound, the sound of a heart beating. And then as the police ask more questions, the sound grows and gets louder and louder and louder. He's looking for recognition on the face of the police who seem to indicate not hearing anything, but the sound of the heartbeat continues to grow louder and louder and louder until he's driven to confess the whole thing. He had murdered his roommate, it hit him, and he invited the policeman to dig up the floorboards to find the whole story. And Poe's story dramatically illustrates the power of a guilty conscience. I'm not sure we need an illustration because I can't imagine that there's any one of us here this morning that doesn't know that gnawing feeling of a guilty conscience. You may be experiencing it right now, but my guess is that there's nobody here that has never had that feeling, that guilty conscience that may just pop up of something done long ago or something not done long ago. The regret, the thought, and the gnawing sense of uncleanness and and shame. It is a common feeling. In fact, I read that there was a study done by Case Western University uh, several years ago 
that indicated the, the average American spends two hours a day dealing with feelings of guilt and 39 minutes of those two hours with moderate to severe anxiety over their guilt. That's typical. That's the typical. The, the average American is dealing with that. And, and so it, it's a very common phenomenon to have that sense of a, a guilty conscience. And, and guilt can drive us to do some crazy things. Perhaps not quite to the extent of Poe's character, I hope. But I remember reading another story of, uh, uh, that uh, took place uh, several years ago, a number of years ago now, uh, where the IRS received uh, an envelope with uh, no return address inside the envelope or was uh, not uh, an insignificant amount of cash and a note that said this cash is for past due taxes on unreported income. But the note concluded, though, unsigned, saying, and if my conscience doesn't feel better within the next week, I'll send the rest of it. <laughs> the guilty conscience is something that is very, very common. And the writer of Hebrews is very well aware of the guilty conscience that is universal in our humanity. And there's a reason that it's universal in humanity is because every one of us is guilty. And we're guilty of something. We're guilty of some way or another violating or, or, or not loving our neighbor as we ought to. We are certainly guilty of not loving our God as we ought to. And therefore, we stand guilty and we feel that guilt. We feel that regret. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to a people who understood very well what it means to have this sense of, of a guilty heart, wondering what their status of their relationship with God in particular was like. And he's writing to them to help them to understand the relationship that they have with God, the relationship that we are able to have with God because of God's grace and sending Jesus Christ, his own son, uh, as an atoning sacrifice for us. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at Romans, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 just kind of rings a bell, doesn't it? But uh, Hebrews chapter 8, and, and he addresses, he kind of, uh, kind of lays out and, and explains the nature of the relationship that God's people have with God. And it's a covenantal relationship. It's rooted in the character of God and what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ and saying, look, we have a covenantal relationship which is deep and abiding and, uh, and, and, and enduring. And now as he moves into chapter 9, he, he's building on what he, the foundation that he laid in, in Hebrews chapter 8. But he's turning a little bit based on that relationship that we have because of the covenant that God has made with his people uh, through Jesus Christ. He, he now builds toward the practical aspects or practical dimensions of that, in particular, having a cleansed conscience. He deals with the cleansed conscience. We, we see the conscience mentioned uh, two or three times in, in this passage until it comes to its conclusion in, in, in verse 14. And he's telling us that we are able to have a relationship with God, and that relationship brings with it a cleansed conscience. Now, as we're going to look at this passage, it's, it's probably helpful to understand this passage kind of flows more of a narrative than in bullet points. But for those who like bullet points, I'll give you kind of a way that the, the chapter unfolds uh, as we'll look at it in, in different parts. It begins with an explanation or a description of the tabernacle furnishings. It moves on to the priestly functions and then wraps up with 
Jesus is even better, which is how he pretty much wraps up every chapter in, in this book. And so we'll begin where he begins uh, in this chapter is, is with the, the, the tabernacle furnishings. He begins uh, kind of making the connection. Now, even the first covenants had regulations. He's going back now. He's already explained about the tabernacle that's in heaven that Jesus ministered in. But he's going back now to the, the old covenant and to the, the tabernacle or the temple where the people were, uh, where the priests were functioning, even at the time of his writing. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. That earthly place of holiness is, was originally the tabernacle, then the t which was uh, as a tent, uh, and then the, ta the, the temple, replacing the tabernacle when uh, they had taken the land in, in Jerusalem, the temple was built, and all of the functions that took place in the tabernacle now took place in, in the temple. But picking up in verse 2, he, he describes this. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence it's called the holy place, and so it's a tent that has basically has two chambers, uh, and the first one is called the holy place, and then behind the second curtain, uh, so you had to go through the first to get into the second, uh, was a section called the most holy, or the holy of holies, which in that section, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides of gold, in which the golden urn holding the manna, uh, Aaron's staff that had budded the tablets of the covenant. And he goes on and he's describing the furniture. And then as it gets to the ark, he's talking about um, what's inside the ark. And then he kind of finishes this after in verse 5 where he says, Above it all were the cherubim who were overshadowing the mercy seat. And of all the stuff we, where we don't have time to talk about in great detail right now. And so to the relief of some of you, if he doesn't have time to talk about it in great detail, then neither do I have time to talk about it in great detail tomorrow. Although for many of you, it's a fascinating story. We can talk about that in great detail another time. But before we move on to the next section, it still is important to at least give a, a, a relatively brief summary. What the author wants us to know, even though he is not going into great detail, he's already given us some detail, is that the tabernacle was a real place, and it was an important place. And it was a tent, but it was a tent that was constructed to the specific specifications that God had given to Moses when Moses was on Mount Sinai. And so for that reason, it was a holy place. And even more of a reason for it to be a holy place is because it was in the tabernacle that God would meet his people. So the tabernacle was a, a real place with two chambers uh, and op, uh, uh, um, operated with specific instructions from God. The other thing that's important for us to know is that the furnishings all were both functional and symbolic and individual pieces of furniture and the, all of it collectively all pointed to the promised Messiah who was to come. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is kind of launching into this, writing to people who probably understood a lot of that, but since it's not part of our culture, we don't really think much about it. Now, I suspect that there may be some who are sitting here thinking, so what? I mean, if I wanted a guided tour of a furniture factory, I can just go down to the museum downtown and go point out and see period pieces, and they'll explain who used it and, and what and whatever. But again, the writer of Hebrews is, is reminding us and reminding them of what they knew uh, because, for a specific reason. 
because it was foundational. And he's going to take from that point, he's going to draw a, a line from that point of the, the faithfulness and the significance of the tabernacle and the regular rituals that took place there up into the present day. And really, he takes it to the, their present day, but what was true for them in that day is also true for us today. And so he's drawing a line for that, which seems to be kind of mind-numbingly boring details about pieces of furniture. And yet he's going to show how that is vitally important for the way that you and I live our lives today. Before I move on, the last thing I'm going to say in terms of the tabernacle is this, is that it's very easy in light of the writer of Hebrews talking about the superiority of Christ and the heavenly tabernacle to minimize the significance or the importance of the tabernacle that he's describing here. Nothing that is written and nothing that is said should detract in any way from the magnificence or the significance of that glorious place where God met his people. It's not that that was wrong. It's not that that was bad. It was great and glorious. But the writer saying as great as it is, God fulfilling his promises in Jesus Christ is even greater. Now, he moves on from there. He moves on from the, the, the furniture tour now to the priestly functions. And we pick up uh, in, in verse 6. And he says this, these preparations haven't been made. In other words, whatever the preparations were necessary to offer the sacrifices, those preparations having been made. The priests go regularly into the first section performing, for performing their duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And what he's describing there is the functions of the priest in that place that God had established, in that tabernacle. He says in the first part, and the priests, all of the priests, the, the rotation of priests would go in and they would serve every single day. Every single day, some of the priests that would go in and they would offer sacrifices for the people. People would bring various types of sacrifices that we uh, read about uh, earlier in, in the Old Testament. Uh, the different kinds of sacrifices, they would be offered on behalf of the people. It was a regular operational place. People would come, they would bring their sacrifices, the priests would offer them. But the second chamber, the Holy of Holies, he's saying that place where God was said to dwell where his Shekinah, the, the tangible, the touchable aspect, where, where God's presence was experienced. It was closed off except for one day per year. And, and even then it was closed off to everybody except for one, the high priest. And he would go in on that one day, Yom Kippur, and he would offer the sacrifices. In fact, we're told very clearly he offers two sacrifices. One, he offered a sacrifice on his own behalf in order to atone for his own sins, to become cleansed from his own sins, because God will not tolerate anything unholy, unclean in his presence. And so therefore, the priest, no matter how godly he was, and some were godly and others were far less so, had to confess 
had to repent, had to offer sacrifice, had to become ritually clean before he was even able to function to offer the sacrifice on behalf of God's people. And once he was cleaned, he would go in and offer that sacrifice. And even then, he didn't go in haphazardly. In fact, he went in quite fearful because there was no guarantee he was coming out alive. If he was found to have not confessed, to have not come clean, to be harboring his own sin, if he was found to have offered a sacrifice that was unacceptable to God, then God would strike him dead. In fact, the Old Testament, we find details of prescriptions that God has made just in case the high priest wasn't quite what he ought to be. And so the high priest, knowing this, going in as best he could, but he, he went in not knowing whether he was going to come out alive or not. He was very conscious of the holiness and the awesomeness and the greatness of our God, something that we would be wise to remember at times. I couldn't help but remembering a conversation that took place in C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Many of you know what I'm going to refer to. But as Mr. Beaver and Susan were speaking, Mr. Beaver said, Aslan is a lion. He is the lion. He's the great lion. To which Susan said, oh, I thought he'd be a man. Is he safe? I think I'd be rather nervous to meet a lion. To which Mr. Beaver says, safe? Whoever said anything about him being safe? Of course he's not safe but he's good. Well, this was the mindset that the high priest would have when he was going in to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people, even the one that he offered on behalf of himself. He's going into a holy God who is in no way safe, no matter how much we've domesticated him in our own culture and even in our own evangelical churches. The high priest went into meet and to offer that sacrifice with a God who is in no way safe, but trusting in his goodness, which is far greater and far deeper than any of us can possibly fathom. So the high priest would go in and he would offer that sacrifice as he went into the Holy of, of Holies. But the whole scene that the writer is describing here is a reminder that though everything that the high priest was doing was good, everything he was doing was right, everything he was doing was prescribed by God for the forgiveness of, of God's people's sin, for uh, a way for uh, that covenant to be renewed. He's reminding us, and he says here, even with all of that, access to experience the presence of God was highly restricted. Only one guy only one time per year, and after he had offered his sacrifice, assuming that it was accepted in the first place, when he began to walk out and he closed that curtain behind him, it was sealed for another year. Nobody went in. Nobody experienced the presence of God. God's holiness, God's otherness enabled him to love a people, to provide for a people, but still there was no communing of a people, communing with his people. 
Everything the priest had done was beautiful. Everything that he did was significant. Everything is packed with meaning. But it was not able to usher people, God's people, into the presence of God. But God had promised that at just the right time, they would allow his people past that curtain. Not just one man once per year, but all of his people at any time to come into his presence. And this is exactly what God wants for you and for me, for all of his people today. To commune with him, to have fellowship with him, to come into his presence regularly and to experience his goodness. It's important to recognize sometimes that the things that we do on on Sunday mornings, as important and as significant as they are, there is a sense in which they are merely religious ritual. They're designed to help us to encounter God, but it's also possible to go through the motions, to do everything that is written on the page or projected on the screen, sing every word of every song, and and go through all of the motions and still not encounter God. It's not because he is absent. It's not because he is not faithful to his promise. It's because sometimes so often we are so focused only on ourselves, only on what it is that we do. that We fail to recognize and to see and to experience the presence and the power of God. And it's not just what we do here on Sunday mornings, even the very means of grace that God has given to us, some of which, most of which we we do here, prayer that is not limited to the sanctuary. Learning God's word is not limited to the sanctuary. But if we read God's word simply for the purpose of learning it, there's certainly nobility and, and some benefit to it. But we are reducing what God has promised because he said, this is my word. Every word is breathed by God. And so there is a sense if we're just reading it so that we can study it, so that we know the flow, we know the narrative, we can answer the questions that people may ask us. It's possible to do all of that and have a great knowledge and still miss the fact that God says, by this word, I am talking to you. In the studying of God's word, we do it not just so that we gain knowledge, but so that we can converse with God. The word of God should be received by those who are the people of God the same way that a a letter from home was received by a soldier in World War I or World War II. You know, present day communications kind of messes up that illustration because, you know, you can get on Zoom immediately. Forget those for a moment. Let's go back in time, back when you are not attached to a screen. Um, and a soldier would receive a letter from home and those every word they would hang on because they knew that was someone who loved, who was speaking. That's what the word of God is. We commune with God through this word. We commune with God in our worship. We commune with God when we have the opportunity to come to the table. We go beyond merely the experiences. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, we are able to be ushered into the presence of God to experience his presence and his power. Some will say, well, of course, and others, it may be news to you. A study that George Barna did several years ago, a number of years ago now, so I don't know what the present statistics are, but I doubt that they're significantly different. He said that 80% of the people 
who were attending evangelical churches had said they had not experienced the presence of God in worship in the past year. And 50% of the people that were in evangelical churches said that they had never really experienced the presence of God ever in a worship service. And when he dug, why is that? He said, because most didn't even know that was something that was available for us to do. And so there's far more than what we do that are the rituals and, and, and the disciplines of the Christian life. What Jesus Christ did was something that the high priest was unable to do. The high priest kind of, re, kind of renewed the covenant over and over and over again, but didn't allow anybody real access from God. They were still the people of God. God provided for them. God loved them, but they didn't really experience him. But when Jesus Christ came, this is what the writer is saying. Jesus is better. So picking back up again, we, we see in verse 11, but when, the, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the one not made with hands, the one that's in heaven, the original uh, by which the, 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 the uh, tabernacle and the temple are, uh, are replicas, he entered once for all into the holy place. In other words, he didn't go back year after year after year. He entered once into that holy place, not by means of blood of goats and other animal sacrifices, but by his own blood. Imagine the picture in your mind. Jesus, having been the priest who offered the sacrifice, was the sacrifice, laid himself down, his blood was shed, and he takes essentially a pan of his own blood into that tabernacle and says, this is the blood that is to be sprinkled for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of the true spotless lamb. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And what the writer is saying is we now, by God's grace, through faith in what Christ has done, we have permanent and open access to God. We commune with God. We communicate with God. We fellowship with God. God is present. God is at work. We are able to experience God in a way that was not available before Christ, the perfect high priest, offered that sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of the promise. The time had come. When the time had fully come, it was in the birth and then the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The high priest would go in and he would seal the curtain. Jesus Christ went in and he tore the curtain apart so that therefore there is no curtain that would separate God's people from God. And because we have fellowship with God, the power of God in his presence is at work. And, and the promise here is to cleanse the conscience of his people. Now, that it could be confusing or complicated in a sense, because, well, what does that mean? To understand that, it's helpful to see what, what he says as he finishes that verse. To purify the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so when he says that he's going to purify our conscience, he's not saying that he's going to wipe every memory out of our minds. You know, forgive and forget. We get that confused because the scripture says God will remember our sins no more. 
But when he's saying that, he's saying that in a judicial sense, that God, when he has forgiven something, he now says, it's done, I will not bring it up again. It's not that he doesn't have any recollection of it. And here's how I know that to be true. Do you remember your sins? Is it possible for you to know something that God doesn't know? Of course not. It's not that God doesn't know them, but he's saying that in a very real sense, it will never be brought up again. The relationship has already been reestablished. It has been renewed. You have been reconciled. And whatever it is that has been forgiven is not going to be brought up against you again, not by God. It will not be considered again. That part is done. And so the conscience to be cleansed is an issue more of, in, we see in relational terms. Think of a time when you may have failed somebody, uh, somebody close to you, whether it's a spouse or your parents or, or your children, in a way that you, know, you could really feel the tension in the relationship. You really felt the separation in that relationship. And, and yet over time and through communication and through forgiveness, that relationship was restored in full. And whatever it was in the past is now in the past. You didn't have to worry about what you had done five years ago when you come into the presence of the person that, with whom you were uh, at odds when you greet them today. You may still be aware of that, but that's not really part of the dynamic of, of your relationship. And so your conscience in that sense is cleansed. You can approach without worry, without fear, because the nature of your relationship is not based upon, nor is it fractured by, whatever transgression had taken place in the past. You have now been restored and reconciled. And so you, you're free. Your conscience is clear and you cleaned and you can come in, in, in communion with that friend. The same is true with God. Having atoned for your sin that separated you from him, having made the promise that he's never going to use that and bring that up to breach your relationship again, you and I have free access before God. And we can have a clean conscience about that. Now, when he says that it's a clean conscience from dead works, he's talking about what we tend to do with our, our, our lives whenever, uh, sometimes in, in, in interpersonal relationships, but so often in our relationship with God, when we know we've really screwed up, we just have this idea that somehow I'm going to pay it back. You know, I really messed up, so I'm going to read 10 chapters of the Bible every day, and then I'm going to pray for this amount of time, and then I'm not going to skip church, you know, for at least a month. And, and so, you know, we kind of do that. We're going, to, we're going to do these things that are all good things, but we're going to do them somehow to earn forgiveness or to justify ourselves, so just so we can feel a little better. In religious terms, we call that penance. And penance seems like such a great idea. In other words, that you suffer until you feel like you have paid back whatever it is that you owe having offended God. The problem with penance is it gets in the way of repentance. And it diminishes the complete grace of God and the fullness of what Christ has accomplished by his atonement. Penance says, I'll pay part and Jesus can pay the rest. God says, no, Jesus pays the whole thing or you'll get no benefit whatsoever. And so when Jesus brings us into that relationship, he, he clears that conscience so that we recognize there's no need for us to do those dead works. Now, it's not that we shouldn't do any of the works. We have the great opportunity, but he changes this. It's we, we die to the, the dead works, and then we are freed to serve the living God. Well, how do we do that? Well, the same way. 
We come into his presence. We communicate with him. We read his word. We worship him. We serve other people. And it goes even further than that. We are free to serve the living God in any way in which he calls us. See, he's reminding us here, and we don't have time to go into it in great detail, but it needs to be touched upon, that it's not just the priests, it's not just the clergy and the missionaries who have this fellowship with God, but you have a relationship with God, whatever vocation you're called to do, and whatever it is you do, you can do to the glory of God, and you do for the sake of the kingdom, and you, as well as anybody who's a clergy, anyone who is in Christ is a priest, because created a priesthood. And so whatever it is that you do for a living, you do it to the glory of God. You're doing it to serve God because you're serving the people who are around you. And you are free to do that, knowing that it brings pleasure to God, but it's not because it's somehow going to earn or merit you anything. There's no need. You have already been set free. The writer of Hebrews knows that we struggle with issues of conscience because we are regularly guilty. But he reminds us of the finality and the perfection of what Jesus Christ has done for us so that we can have fellowship with God. And that's what we long for us all. My prayer is that I and you, we would all experience freedom of the fellowship that Jesus Christ has secured for us. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for this word, for this encouragement. We pray that by your spirit, you would enable us to believe. Set us free from our own foolishness, our own striving, because our striving is failing. But by believing, by resting, by trusting, we are empowered. We may live lives to glorify you by enjoying you now and forever. Amen.